This episode of Tune on Toast is brought to you by Hammer Toyota here in Southern California, out there in Mission Hills. When it's time for you to go buy a new car or lease a car, sell your car, trade in your car, just keep them in mind. Support the company that has been supporting Tuna on Toast from day one. If you just go out to the lot, it's like no other experience. You know, sometimes it's time to get a car and you have that nervous feeling. You're like, uh-oh, I know how I'm going to be treated. It's not like that there. They're just really cool people. They'll treat you like a rock star. And you can always start out by going to the website, H-A-M-E-R, HammerToyota.com. Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music, and I love those that create it. Strikers here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on toast. Welcome to another episode of Tuna on Toast. It is Ted Stryker. Appreciate you listening to this podcast uh, on YouTube, Tune on Toast with Striker. YouTube, you can watch every one of these episodes, and the content is a little bit different there. And a great example is something from today's episode. Mark McGrath and I, and this is only on YouTube, we play a round of Name That Tune when he comes over to the house. Uh, Mark McGrath, like, this guy's a great storyteller. Also, he knows so much about music. He knows more about music than just about anybody that I've ever met. So... His trivia skills are a 10 out of 10. His song, like you can just hum a song. He knows who it is. It doesn't matter if you're talking about uh, new wave in the 80s, punk rock, hard rock, or even hip hop from any decade. He's really good. And the name that tune round is awesome. So that's on YouTube. If you don't want to watch our pretty faces on YouTube and just listen, that's fine too. But the most important thing is you are supporting this podcast. Before we get to Mark McGrath, and Mark McGrath is awesome. I mean, this guy, this is such a good podcast episode. But quickly, I know you're waiting for McGrath. I have to share this with you. My wife, I mean, it's a weird situation. My wife, Katie, left town yesterday. And I'm not sure if I'm sitting here this second, if I'm the happiest and most relaxed I've been, or if I'm the saddest guy in the world. Because on one hand, last night, the first night she was gone, I got... Uh, Fat burger, fat fries. I went to AM, PM and bought a ton of candy. I ate all of that. The house is kind of a mess right now. Even though I believe I'm the neater one, the house is a total mess in 24 hours. This morning I got up and I went to Yum Yum Donuts, which I shouldn't have done. That was so stupid. She's gone. And now I'm just, I'm eating like it's my last supper and all terrible meals. But then at the same time, I don't have to hide any of my food <laughs> rappers anywhere also i have a, a serious problem over the last two and a half years uh somewhat i almost addicted to food delivery and it's just it's way too expensive i i don't necessarily have all the funds to be ordering as much food as i do but now she's gone so i'm doing it guilt-free blah, blah. But then I really, really miss her because the Tune on Toast studio here at home, the second bedroom, I like I like hearing her little feet go down the hallway or she's in the kitchen or whatever she's doing. It's just, it's weird. It's very quiet around the house. It's me. It's the 16-year-old dog who can't hear a thing. He's sitting in this room with me right now. Bonsai, wake up. The guy won't even wake up. 
All right, let's get to it. Enough of me yapping. I just, I'm feeling, uh, yeah, I have a range of emotions right now, but I am super, super excited that you get to check out Mark McGrath. So without any further ado, here he is, the front man from Sugar Rain, great TV host, an all-around wonderful dude, Mark McGrath. Test, test, test. Oh, yo, no. Freeze frame. Oh, my God. I bought the Jay Giles vinyl in Westwood when I was a kid. Did you really? Yes. What a great call. Man. How old were you then? That oh must have been one of your God. first records then. Because that came out in 82. Yeah, it was similar time. Whenever that Men at Work Yellow album yeah, came out. Yeah, that was 83. Okay. Yeah. Cargo? Yes. Yeah. That's a good double purchase if you bought that then. That's a good yeah. intro in that world. And I was not, am not cool. Definitely was not then. I bought an Oingo Boingo vinyl. You like me. Oingo Boingo was you too in LA. Right. I mean, because I always say the K-Rock effect. <clears throat> the K-Rock phenomenon when I talk about podcasts. Because we know a lot about Psychedelic Furs, Echo and the Bunnaman, Depeche Mode. It took people, the rest of the United States, a long time to catch up to that. Yeah. While we were getting delivered this amazing catalog of music from Flesh for Lulu, for whoever it was, it's part of my, like, I talk, I talk about Flesh for Lulu like I speak out the Rolling Stones. It's how much they mean to me in my life. But because I grew up in Southern California because of K-Rock. You know what I mean? Right. And right, uh, so right. it's, it, Oingo Boingo seems like a likely purchase for a kid in Westwood. Yeah. Looking for some big hits, <laughs> yeah. big records, you know? And I didn't even know until like 10 years ago that that was like a good purchase at the time. Yeah, that was solid. That was solid purchase. Dan, Danny Elfman is so gnarly. He's got bored of music. He's like, I'm just tired of the three chord and the truth structure. Right, yeah. I've, I've completely annihilated that. I've played every Norma Dome from here to Timbuktu. I'm just going to make Tim Burton soundtracks, you know? And that's not such an easy left. <clears throat> that's like as likely as Marky Mark becoming our biggest actor and winning an Oscar. Oh, my God. Right. Happen? I don't know if, <laughs> wait, did he win the uh, nominated? Hey, says he won one. I don't know if he's won, but the guy was incredible in Boogie Nights. He was incredible in a lot yeah, of Yeah, in a lot of things. In fact, he should and be getting like almost a Denzel, like, acquiesce Oscar. Like, just, if he gets nominated again, he needs to get it in case he never gets there again. Right. Because his body of work is phenomenal. It is. You know, no matter good. what you feel about Mark Wahlberg, he's incredible. And when you think about the story... He was Marky Mark and somehow and the funky bunch. The no, you're like, face. oh yeah, the funky bunch uh, underwear model. <laughs> right. And then he gets in these movies and he's like, oh, this guy's really natural on camera. Right. He's really a good actor. And he's incredible. He's compelling. I mean, yeah. I remember Fear. Do you remember that movie Fear? Of course, on the Such roller coaster. Song. Yeah. <laughs> My wife still talks about that. Why can't you be sexy like that? I'm like, because I'm me. Uh, and I go, he's got he's got a real magnetism about him. Like he's got yeah. this guy's gonna go. This isn't just uh, this isn't just for show. You know. I wish he'd play Funky Bunch one last time. Just go, you know, that would be the most He's charming a, thing he could right, do. Right, totally. Don't you agree? Like, yes. charity or something? Because we get it. You know, like, you're really past that, and you survived a one-hit wonder sort of meme joke in history. You survived this. I know he's probably very, very protective of that. But he doesn't need to be but anymore. It would be, like, William Zabka owns Johnny Lawrence now. Uh -huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, he could have been like, of course. please don't call me Johnny Lawrence in 2018. Now it's like one of the biggest shows on Netflix for four years in a row. Absolutely. And Vanilla Ice the same way. He fought yeah. being Vanilla Ice forever. I mean, it made him depressed and it, it made him like, he was just so bummed out. And finally, Hammer, of all people, said, dude, the people are out there. I'm out there, and they went on tour '91 together. And he and he goes, I think it was like in 2009 or 10. He goes, just come out and roll with me. Let's do a month. And if you hate it, don't ever do it again. Sold out like hysteria. And then wow. Bell Ice went, 
hey, I think I put these tools down and start going yeah. back on stage again. Right. And, you know, people love it. I tour, I do a lot of shows with Vanilla Ice, and he's great. People Robbie Van it. Winkle? Robbie Van Winkle, that's right. <laughs> Motocross champion from Texas? Yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> now, that we can, now that we can fact check things, man, uh, yeah. people are looking back in Mark, their bios. Because, is that crazy, the fact checking? And, like, well, the rewatching, and now you can really do a deep dive on, like, well, what was really going on? And it's crazy. We were known to extend the truth a little bit here. Yes, we said in our bio that our guitar player, Rodney, was Chaka and landed the law. No. Yes, we did. We put that in our bio, bro. We put that in our bio, and then we got a cease and desist letter from who? Chaka. No. Oh, yeah, that was the best part about it. I mean, he's like, I'm still out here, you know, doing okay, shows. Okay, hold on, Mark, we're still, hold on. These are about, to, I'm doing audio. This will be part of the audio Oh, I'm sorry, you guys aren't, I got, I'm sorry, no, I thought no. we were rolling. No, we're not doing, the, we're rolling audio, which I'm going to play all this, by the way. Okay, good, but good. But the cameras are about to start. The oh. audio is what I've been listening to most. You have? Yeah, no yeah, way. Yeah, of course. That's wow. Just, that's why. Do you have a favorite guest so far? Morello was great. Yeah. You know, he's just so articulate oh, and smart. He makes you feel yeah. so stupid. And then, like, <laughs> the way he... He doesn't rest his laurels on Rage Against the Machine. And anybody could. That band just uh, revolutionary. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, three records? Right. Uh, three or four. Like a, they did a redo. Like, I think yeah. they did a covers record yeah. or something. But three right. records and have that impact on the world. And to be honest with you, they're a rap rock band. Fight me. Yeah. And I know that's blasphemy to say about Rage Against the Machine, but they are such an amazing band. But the they're, not even, they're, not even deter- a... they're not even defined as a rap rock band. They're the original one. Yeah. And then a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because incredible songwriting, incredible musicianship, and the best live show I've ever seen in my life. It was the last show I went to where I was scared. I was scared. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was wow. like, they, they opened for House of Pain. In 1992, at Santa Monica Civic. No. Funk Dubious. Yeah, Funk Dubious, right? Raised Against the Machine and House of Pain. And I love House of Pain. I love those guys. But I felt so bad for them after Raised Against the Machine. Literally, you could feel the earthquake proofing on the building rocking during <laughs> Raised Against the Machine. And then House of Pain was smart enough to bring them out after and try to just salvage the rest of the right. show. But we were just already done. After this band, <laughs> arguably the best playing band live ever, comes on, and then a track act follows Raised Against okay, the Machine. Okay, Mark, hold on. Stop right oh, there, sorry, Mark. Sorry, sorry, Stop, Mark. Uh, okay, give me our same okay. and then we're good to go. You ready? Are we recording? <laughs> okay, three, two, one. Mark Woo! McGrath, we've already had like 25 minutes of warm up here so far. I'm already sweating. I'm I've sweating. got anxiety already. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how I did on the lyrical thing and uh, I blew the, the Warren G thing, but I'm good striker and I'm such a fan of your podcast. It's an honor Thank to you. be on it. I like Thanks, I kind of asked myself to be on it. I we've been hitting each other in uh, social media. I'm like, "Hey, your podcast is great." Hint hint crickets. And then I go, no. "Hey, I saw the other thing and uh, the interrupters that <laughs> crickets." I go, "Love the Tom Morello thing." And by the way, I'm just down the street. And then oh, he's like, "Oh, Okay, I was going to wait for these C-listers later, but no, I'll take them in no, now. No, Mark. Honored to be here, What bro. you wrote was, hey, uh, when it's time to get to the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> that's, right. that's that's what you wrote. <laughs> Mark, listen, yes, you've right. been in this business for a very, very long time. Yes, sir. And you play shows still all over, and people care. You recognize how, like, rare that is, right? Oh, it's such a rarefied error. You know, after all these years, I always say the hardest thing about show business, the second hardest thing in show business is having success. That's the second hardest thing. Okay. The hardest thing is staying there. I mean, look at all the people just filtered in, just come down this hill. We're in the Hollywood Hills. Buy a house up here. Second record fails. Out of here. 
That's the majority of people after success, after you already did the second hardest thing in the world. So all of us tried to be the Eagles. All of us tried to be uh, the the Bon Jovis of the world, the bands that could play forever. You know, the Smashing Pumpkins, uh, the Jane's Addictions of the world. We all took a shot at it, Smash Mouth, you know, yeah. uh, Everclear, all of us. We didn't get to do it. But we didn't become legacy bands, but we have legacy songs. Yes. So that is where we still get to play for the rest of our lives. And... I always say I have four songs, we'll travel. Acapella, acoustic, tracks, <laughs> my band, your band, however you want to hear them, man. I'm happy to play them, and I'm just so honored that we somehow fell into these four songs. I still get to make a living off music and raise my kids and, and have a great life. You know, My dream still continues. You know what I mean? That's, that's what's the great thing. I still have a uniform in this thing called Hollywood. Right. And so what is your main focus in 2022? Is it play as many shows as possible? Is it, hey, I want the world to know that I'm a freaking unbelievable host and I want to do that? Or is it whatever comes your way, you're game on doing? Yeah, I think it's a, a I'm really whatever comes my way, I'm game on doing. When you see me on Mass Singer. But you're Singer, consistent. When you see so me on Mass Singer on that. in a nine foot whale costume, I'm pretty up for doing whatever. Uh, and I think the world has seen me as a host and I'm average. I'll save it for the pros like you, Stryker. Uh, but uh, no, but no, playing no, shows, no, no. Yeah. It, it's in my heart and soul. You know, I took a little break at extra. I never stopped playing shows. I just stopped being in a band that, you know, recorded music and went on tour. And some of the other guys in the band were having kids and they wanted to take a break. And 2007-ish, right? When 2004, you did... believe it or not, oh, is when wow. I started extra and I worked there to 2008. But we still did 40, 50 shows a year because I love performing. That's what I want to do first and straight off. And I, I always say my, my, my goal in life, my, my ideal death, if I can be a little bit macabre, would be to die in uh, the middle of three sets in a Denny's in Barstow at the end of fly, like, ah, just, and I just fall asleep in your grand slam. And that is it. I'm 76, had a great life. That to me is perfection. So I am just so grateful. I try to stack all these shows during the year, Striker. I'm in a couple other bands as well, which also uh, adds to the show, um, List uh, Ezra Ray Hart is a band with uh, Kevin Griffin from Better Than Ezra. Yes. And Emerson Hart from Tonic, where we play all the hits of Sugar Ray, Better Than Ezra, Hart, uh, Tonic. We put all them all great together. Songs from the bands. Yeah, yes. and we're just one big band, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm in Royal Machines too with Dave Navarro right. and Josh Fries and all these guys. Yes. So I really just have somehow found myself serendipitously into a position where I can play a lot of shows and, and, and still uh, keep the lights on. And I really love to perform. Now, if other opportunities come with the, you know, I sometimes I get opportunities to uh, do these, you know, CNN and do the best of the 90s or something. And I'll get to host those. And I did some VOs for the dark side of the right. 90s, which is yes. really cool. Yeah. Now, I'd never done VOs before because I'm such a spaz. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> so I would be, I would go into this kind of like VOs. Like, hey, the stars were out in Hollywood last night. And like, everybody's like, dude, tone it down. So at the Vice dark side of the 90s, they literally had me like almost like three quaaludes in going like, <laughs> Johnny Depp bought a club down on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, when you're listening to a podcast and you turn it down a little bit, that's how I kind of had to turn down my energy, but it worked. So I'm learning new things as I'm going along and always up for something new. Stryker. It's always. right. And it seems like that you are a guy as an outsider, just watching your whole career that you your trajectory, it still goes like this. It's never like down here because you get these gigs, voiceover gigs, your 90s show. Are you still doing the 90s show that you're hosting? We, we changed it a little bit on Sirius XM. Uh, there's a show called Mark McGrath's 120 and we were doing it on weekends. And I felt like I hit the ceiling there. 
you know, I think we've done this. You know, I've told every story I got. That's every that's every shoe in the in the in the store. Uh, and so they go, how about we do a Mark Morass 120? We do like 120 seconds during the day. And so now I'm on like every day, really quickly. Uh, okay. Don't blink or probably miss me. But it's a great way to stay connected with SiriusXM, who's been so good to me and the band. So I, I think in terms of staying here, you have to accept and, and receive the ebb and flows. Okay, so. You, you make it in a band, say, and like you have you have a, like a four to five year cycle for most bands. I talked about most bands try to be legacies. doesn't happen for everybody. So if you get that four to five year cycle, you're like, okay, now how am I going to continue? Do I still love music? Do I still want to play this forever? Well, check. That is what I want to do. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Well, what, how else can I do to supplement that? Because maybe I can't. You know, there's a point in time there in 2009, 2010. The stink of the 90s was still very, very foul. Like, you know, we just weren't in vogue. We were, everybody was hustling for those couple of gigs. So right. the, the competition right. was tough to get these gigs. Now the 90s have opened way back up again. I think people are learning it's going to be your last decade you ever see. No, I'm saying that because, and I say that because it was the last time we all received music the same way. Certainly in the oh, music way. Right. You know, we got, right, we got, they right. came out on a Tuesday. The, uh, the videos were sent to uh, TRL on a Thursday. Whatever it was, I can't, you know. So, and we all saw the charts and here was the music and here was the channels. Now everybody gets music in so many different places and music is such a leader in terms of how fashion, the aesthetic and how cultural uh, things uh, happen. And now that it's all over the place, it's on the internet, it's not so much in front of our Face as it was growing up in MTV, listening to K-Rock, listening to Kiss FM, whatever it was. Um, so I don't think it's going to be very strange to have defined decades going forward. So I think people look back at the 90s with rose-tinted glasses. By the way, I lived through it. Wasn't that amazing? It was great. My <laughs> dreams came true. So, I mean, it was great. But yeah. we look back at it as a lot more cooler than it actually was. I mean, look, I still had those highlights in the 90s. These were never cool. I'm still rocking them. How do you still have the most perfect hair in history, you are blessed. Look at this. Your looks, your hair. I mean, there's a you're secret. so open. You put on a freaking bathrobe on Instagram and everyone's like drooling over this. I don't like to brag. Well, apparently everybody <laughs> says I've had more plastic surgery than, uh, than, uh, Joan Rivers, and uh, <laughs> I look like Madam and Waylon and all that. I'm like, can a guy just gain 20 pounds in peace, brothers and sisters? You know what I mean? And somebody be like, God, you don't look like you did in 97. I go, yeah, you don't either. You know what I mean? It's, it's funny. It's called Father Time. He's undefeated. I try and like, you know, run a little bit and do my thing. The hair, and I tell everybody this, and I am not working for them. I am just a client. Here we go. I am just a propitia. Oh, really? Now, here's the problem with fellas with, with hair loss. Okay. And, and I, know, I know people are listening right now and going, oh, God, he's on my subject. He's on my Achilles heel. That really bothers me. Guys are the last one to tell themselves that their hair is leaving their person. Okay? Because they're like, oh, no, what's going cool, on? I'm just going to flip this over here and do a spider sides over here. Here we go. Okay. But, but, but guys are the last ones to know. If you get on it early... There's a pill called Propecia that helped me. When I was on an extra in 2004, I mean, I was super vain back then, even more vain than I already am. Uh, and so, but you know, I could tell if I had a heavy weekend or not because I'm, well, I look a little bloated. And I saw like a little bit of my hair starting receding. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I had a friend whose hair started receding a little bit. And I asked him, I go, dude, I've noticed your hair started going. And he stopped me <laughs> mid-sentence. He goes, Propecia. <laughs> so I went and got on Propecia. I've been on it since 2004. Um, oh my God. Okay. And it, it kept my hair. It's just, it, my hair goes all crazy ways and I've got a, 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 another third arm growing out my back. But other than that, <laughs> Propecia's crap kidding. Greg can sued twice here on the thing. But, uh, but it's been really good to me, man. It's been really good to me. It's kept my hair in the game. Uh, so we'll see. My dad was beyond bald. My grandfather was bald. So I think it has something to do with my luxurious looks. And the bathrobe thing is, that's just for the ladies. It's, uh, it's just for the well, ladies. Well, I like it too. You all right, Mark. I mean? <laughs> we can tell, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, we're going, we're going very fast. <laughs> 
We need to rewind yes. to Shrinky Dinks. Yes. Okay, so we're going like, when did Shrinky Dinks, which became Sugar Ray, which got the deal, was it Atlantic? Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. What the hell was going on with your band and live shows, and how did your band end up with a label deal? Yeah, man, it's the most backwards story of all time of maybe the most untalented band ever to get a Come record on. deal. No, and I'm saying that we became talented. I'll tell you that. And I, I'm very proud of the songs we wrote. Okay. But we were just a Hail Mary pass. Okay. Um, in 1988, the band started and we were called the Shrinky Dinks. And the emphasis on the X with the little Motley Crew umalots over the X. Because yes. It was metal time. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was Faster Pussycat. It was LA Guns. It was Bang Tango. And that's all we wanted to be. And I say that shamelessly now and I still love all of those bands. Um, and I never lost a love for them. Um, we found out we weren't really that good at as musicians or songwriters. So what we became is like a cover band. We played every keg party we played. We played everyone in, uh, around our areas. We went down to uh, San Diego. We had friends going to college. So we started to play parties at San Diego State, UCSB. And we started to get a little vibe as a college frat party band thing. You know, we'd play everything from Run DMC to Blondie to, to Judas Priest to Motorhead when that wasn't really being done. You know, this is pre-Lollapalooza, homie. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and so we were just grooving and then naturally people were like, why don't you try writing your own songs? So we did and they were really bad. I think we had one song called uh, Lick Me, one song <laughs> called uh, Gold Digger, and the one that got the record deal was called Caboose. Okay. Now, there was something visual happening about our band. The bands we loved, the Chili Peppers, the the, the Sex Pistols, uh, the Beastie Boys, were those bands that really gave it up uh, a, a, as a live entity. You know, there was a lot going on. You could look at each guy in the band. They were always, they were doing something. There were characters. So we almost had the show before we had the material. In fact, we did. And Mick G, who ended up producing all our videos, my best friend of 45 years, still today. To and Mick day. G, if you don't know, is an incredibly successful movie director, starting with Charlie's Angels, and then you can look at his IMDb and see the rest. That's exactly right. But he basically dotted the landscape of MTV in the late 90s. Every video from Sublime, uh, Smash Mouth. Yes. Uh, the, we talked about... Uh, the. Um, fastball, no. Yeah, no, we talked about Fastball. Fastball, the way he did. He did Offspring, the corn. I mean, every other, the corn, corn, every other video uh, on MTV for a while was a McGee directed video. It was crazy. So he kind of like he was responsible for the aesthetic. Anyway, super smart guy. So what he did to us is go, it was kind of like, listen, you guys can't really write any songs, but there's a, there's a visual thing happening here. And I'm kind of into film and stuff. <laughs> I want to uh, borrow from Peter, Rob Paul to borrow from Peter, whatever that saying is, and we'll make a video. But we'll put it on 35 millimeter, millimeter film and we'll, you know, it'll be ready to go on TV. We'll make a video ready to go. So instead of just throwing some, you know, innocuous cassette on a desk, which they did back then in A&R people, we made a video. Now, the video turned out pretty cool because we had Mick G directing it, who was going to be the future of these videos anyway. So we had a really good eye and we didn't have like a, we just had no idea. We, th- we, we shot things that we thought were cool. There's a bulldog right there. Shoot his face. You know, let's, let's ice skate around the rink. With so is it like a sizzle reel of Sh- Sugar Ray slash Sh- uh, your, uh, the Shrinky Dinks band? That, is right. that what it was? It was a just like, and how long was it? Three or four minutes three long? Minutes. A song called Caboose, three and a half okay. minutes. Okay. Oh, so- uh, it had some live shots and it had like you know, some pits and just some, you know, pre like, Pre-90s Volcom lifestyle, it looked like a video. Okay. And Volcom was actually a party we used to play because we knew Richard Wolcott, who was the CEO of Volcott, started started Volcom, Volcott, 
I'm, you got my head spinning, man. I'm getting older. Uh, so we used to play a lot of Volcom parties, and that too got a lot of a little heat going on. So we made this video, and the video looked great. And the song was just good enough to get by. It had a verse, chorus, and it kind of rocked a little bit. Song right. called Caboose. And we had a little bit of a DJ thing in there, which was kind of new at the time. Um, and it got to the, we, we put it in a pizza box, and we sent it to everybody in the world. Everybody got the pizza box with the video in it. Uh, you know, advertising, marketing, 101. Uh, Rick Rubin calls. And McGee loves Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin's team's call, I should say. We go, yeah, we're going to be on Deaf America. Yeah, <laughs> that's so great. And he goes, you know, I got the, I got the video, and I, I don't know much about the song, but what you guys are doing marketing-wise is great. Would you want to be part of the street team here? And we just went, what? No. It was the best oh call ever. Oh, my God. Until it wasn't. No. So we kind of passed on that. We just kind of trudged around a little bit. Got a call from some guys in New York. They were managers. Um, this guy named Chip and a guy named Lee. Oh, and Chip ended up being our manager for a long, long time. Uh, and they said, we got your video. We love it. We love it. Uh, we, we want to manage you guys, blah, blah, blah. They manage us. They knew a guy who came in on the train who worked from Atlantic Records in New York. He saw the video. He loved it. Now, he played it for Doug Morris, and Doug Morris was the CEO of Atlantic Records in, uh, in fall of 1993. Okay. And this all happened within a two-week period of the, the piece of boxes going out, the video being finished, the get, getting management, and it getting to Doug Morris. Within two weeks? Within two okay, weeks. Okay, here we and go. By the way, and this is when things went slowly. This was no internet, no information. Right. Slowly. No links, no nothing. You, once it got in the house of Atlantic Records, that that thing, yeah. Doug Morris looked at it and he just goes, sign these guys. I don't care what it takes. They reminded me why I got into music. They just are having fun. Now, mind you, this is early 90s, grunge. I hate myself. That yeah. was all the thing. We're like, yeah, come on, let's party. That was us. And so Doug Morris goes, we'll figure it out later. And I said to they go, how many songs you guys have? I go, we got like 40 songs. <laughs> how many fans you got? I've got fans up and down the Southern California. No fans, no songs, no no, nothing. This is when you can actually bamboozle a record company. And so we ended up getting a million dollar, two record firm deal with Atlantic Records off one video. They, so no matter what happened with the first record, Lemonade and Brownies, you guys were able to make that second record, which had Fly on there. Which is a very smart record deal that our managers made. Because at the time, you know, you, you get the deal, you'd make one record, and then the label had the option to get rid of you. But they said, we want two firm. They held on so tight. And Doug Morris, because it came from up high. Yeah. The, you know, we didn't have an A&R guy. Doug Morris was our A&R guy. He goes, sign those guys. Since it came from on high, we pretty much were able to dictate the terms. Because those were like, it was impossible to get two firm back. Okay, hold on. Impossible. You make lemonade and brownies. Yes. Uh, you, you guys DJ, cannot be DJ, DJ, DJ Lethal. Yep, DJ Lethal from House of Pain and Limp Bizkit. Yes. Because we go, you know, God, we love that song, Jump Around. We love it. And we love House of Pain. And we kind of want to be like that. Maybe we can be friends with them and go on tour with them and all this stuff. And yeah, hell yeah. So we reached out to DJ Lee from House of Pain. He goes, yes, I will produce your record. Killer! Find out like next week that Muggs produced Jump Around. But right. no, not a problem. DJ Muggs, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because Lior, a lethal is such an incredible producer. Probably one of the most underrated producers of our generation. He has so many great things, and he really helped us make a record, which was Lemonade and Brownies. Because on that first record, there's just tracks. He would give us loops, and we'd go like, we're a rock band. You know, right. We don't know what to do with these. Right. And so we'd start, start doing falsettos and things, and we were learning to structure songs. It was kids in a candy store with a lot of great influences, with not a lot of talent. So a lot of that had to filter through, and then we had to get out and, and start making this a full-time job. I think when we started getting better as musicians and songwriters, naturally, it was when it came a full-time job. This is what we did. We're going to go tour around the world. We're going to play music. We're going to coalesce as a band. We're going to define our chemistry. And 
like I said, we always had a lot of great influences, and that's something that helped us a lot. How were you able to get people at your shows when f- that first record did not necessarily have radio hits on there and wasn't being blasted on MTV, which is radio and MTV is how many people would discover bands? Who did you go on the road with? How did you win over fans? It's twofold, really. We had a lot of success in Europe. In Europe at the time, Rage Against the Machine had just ran through there and became gods. You know, and and the rap rock thing and and and, and white guys from Orange County rapping was not lame over there yet. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was like it was something that was new and fresh. Um and it wasn't so proprietary like it was here. You know, like we always felt like yeah, you can't, you know, we're not, we're not, we're kids from the beach we can't rap you know we always loved hip-hop and it was part of our musical aesthetic but rapping I the only time I ever rapped because of my lack of singing and not knowing where my voice was but we had like sort of a rap rock record and we got thrown in with bands like that like Downset. oh wow uh, and so we were getting a little bit of traction out there in Europe enough so that Atlanta kept shoveling money into us to tour. Now we had one tour in the United States on Lemonade and Brownies to show you how not well it was doing oh here. Oh my God. We did seven tours in Europe okay. of, of uh, Lemonade and Brownies to show you how well it was doing over there. Uh, we did a tour with Corn and Lords of Brooklyn. How did you guys go over with that crowd? Fine. And I'll tell you why, because we got hard stuff in our arsenal. I know you Mean do. Machine, Iron Mike. I love uh, 10 Seconds Down. Tap, Twist, and Snap. Tap, Twist, and Snap. I wasn't there yet, but we, you know, we had these songs okay. that were heavy. Oh, that's right. That was on Florida. That was right, on Florida. Right, 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 right. We'd right, dip, right. dip into some of our influences. We'd play like, you know, Wasted by Circle Jerks, and we'd, we'd play like, you know, we just, we'd play Wango Tango by Ted Nugent. Ted, Ted Nugent, Nugent, yeah. You know, we'd just go out there and just be aggressive and, not, and just, you know, exploding. With and this. you were showmen. And we're showmen too as well. So we were going to make people like it whether they didn't or not. And we were friends with Corn, so that had a lot to do with it. It was really good. Um, and I remember that tour. They had Jägermeister sponsoring that tour. Uh-oh. Uh, and they had a Jägermeister kegerator in Corn's dressing room. Someone thought that'd be a good idea for two nights. That thing went away quickly. I, mean, it was, I, think, I think we were the problem in that one. Uh, so we did about two and a half weeks like that. We're making a lot of inway here in America. Got no, I, we got to add the Live 105 in San Francisco, which was a big ad, and we got to add uh, the Edge in Seattle. So we were getting some ads, but they would quickly drop off. It wasn't, it wasn't reacting. I think that the radio stations wanted to be on it just in case it happened. And I also missed something I want to say about getting signed. Yeah. Because of Nirvana in '91, if you had a Marshall guitar, okay, you know, if you if you had a Les Paul, you had a Marshall amp, and you turned on to 11 and you didn't play solos, you could get a major record deal. Wow. Because the labels didn't know what was going to happen after that. They did not know. All the guys that could play, the King's X's of the world, the the uh, Mr. Biggs of the world, you guys are out. If you play at all, if you if you just spent your Maslow's 10,000 hours practicing, you're out. You're not getting signed. So we wow. were in a perfect place, a perfect time to get signed. That's why I wanted I wanted you to know because they signed every band. Every band got signed. You know, back then, 20 bands got signed, 11 ever released a record, and three were successful. Those were the numbers because the economics are so bad for the label. Like, look, I'm the only artist in the world that will feel bad for the label because their economic position, their business practice was to give away so much money that they were hoping that the three uh, that would hit yeah. would make up for all the ones that they lost. So there's a reason why that the, the business practices are so askew, but that's a whole nother story. Anyway, so we had another like week of touring and then we were on the fence of whether we we're going to have to make another record because... We found out that Atlantic was going to say, hey, we can just buy you out. We don't have to, we can just give you the money and not release it. And we're like, we're like oh my God, that's looking very likely. And we're like, oh my gosh. And so I had a buddy named John Nardichone who worked uh, the metal at Atlantic Records. Okay. And he goes, Mark, 
I know you love Howard Stern. I do too. The Meat Puppets were supposed to cover Psychedelic B uh, by Howard Stern. They won't do it. They can't do it. They can't get it together. This is a long shot. You're on a label. Stop Stop what you're doing. Go to a community college and see if you can borrow their facilities and record Psychedelic B. Now, we're, we're, we got two shows left before we're going home and it's over. Uh, we stop at Denver Community City College. I'll never forget it. We stop there. We knock on the door. There's this guy that goes, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'd love to record a band. Another part of serendipity and luck. Right? Yeah. So he sets us up. We have two hours. We record Psychedelic B. And, we, and, and it was kind of like grungy, like, Wah! it was just noise. It was like, oh, is this going to be, if this is it, man, then, I'm, then we aren't it. Uh, so we FedEx it, sent it to our manager in New York. No cell phones back then, don't right. forget, no nothing. So we do an 18-hour drive in a van, really low energy, bummed out. Spirits are completely depleted. We get to our next gig in Wyoming, and we pull in about 9.30 in the morning in the parking lot. And the uh, manager of the place is there, which would never happen. Pe- people who travel in vans know what I'm talking about. They don't get there to five or six till they open up. They're crusty and angry. Right? This guy's going, ah! He's running <laughs> to the van. I'm like, this guy's the nicest guy in the world. He's got some pretty good news. Or he thinks we're somebody else. We're going to find out. He goes, listen, listen. Call your manager right now. Howard Stern's been playing your song all day long oh on the radio. My God. He wants you in the studio Howard. on Monday. Call your manager. And he's like, come on, call, call. And he took us in the office. We called. And our manager, we can hear him in the background. He had Howard Stern on. He was playing the thing. We're like, oh my God. It was, it was like a, a it was like a the wonders moment. You know what right. I mean? It was like it was like, right. we're like, oh my God. And our manager goes, just leave the van there. Just leave everything. Get on a plane. You've got to be here by Monday to start playing. We got to capitalize on the momentum. So he's playing this on the air, and your management says, come to New York or come back to L.A. and let's so start go, working. Leave the van where it is. Oh. Leave your <laughs> crap where it is and get to New York immediately. We need to cash in on this vibe. Atlantic, whoa, Waking the Sleeping Giant has decided to buy the tickets to bring you guys in and put you guys up in New York, which we they had never put out a dollar on their own just to be cool, but they knew the value of being on Howard Stern, what that would do. Went to Howard Stern. We brought a couple girls with us because we knew him in New York. You know, we might be dumb, but we're not stupid. You know okay, what I'm saying? Yeah. And Howard loved them. And we ended up being on the show for about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. Oh we my played the song twice. God. It was like the song was like a minute and 10 seconds. We got on E. E Channel was filming back then. And then because of that, the label said, let's capitalize on this momentum. Yes, you guys can make a second record. Floored. So Howard Stern always says he's responsible for careers. He's absolutely responsible for the career of Sugar Ray. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that's why wow. we put Psychedelic being our greatest hit. Wow, yeah. wow, yeah. wow, yeah. wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. So you go make Floored, and you bring in David Kahn to produce this, right? This is a professional you're bringing in. A yeah. very, 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 very professional human uh, musical being. He's a human musical being. <laughs> we got rid of our friends. Like, hey, dude, let me produce you. What's that button do? Let's not find out, dude. Let's get a guy who really knows what that button does. Uh, and um, it was David Kahn. Yep. David Kahn scared the hell out of all of us because he was a task master. I mean, he's a very cerebral guy. He'll yell at you. He, he's just, he's got a face like this. He's got a poker face. He's always, he, and he's one of those guys who's always the smartest guy in the room. So not only does his Criticism bite harder. He's right every time. Mm. Um, now, David Kahn had just come off the success of What I Got. Now, Sublime's What I Got is gigantic. Now, we talked about looking back on the 90s with rose-tinted sunglasses. Yeah. We all, Sublime, untouchable, one of the greatest bands of all time. Back then, before What I Got, 
the odds of them after coming up date rape and all those songs of having a gigantic hit that was going to go into the top 40 was pretty pretty <laughs> long you know they would show up to gigs and do 45 minute dub jams if they showed up to the gig so seeing that this song became so gigantic didn't give us uh encouragement because we're not sublime. They're so freaking talented, but it did make us feel a little simpatico. Somehow this man, David Kahn, took the hip hop elements of sublime, yeah. the reggae and all that, yep. and mixed it together. And we were sitting on fly, which we felt felt good about. Hold on, okay. hold on. You had these songs recorded for the album. Not recorded. Where fly was. Not recorded. Oh, not recorded. I we had pieces of songs. We always wrote in pieces. Some but you had wrote- a song like RPM on there, and then you had a song, right? Was co-written by Dave Snake Sabo from oh Skid Row. That's got a certain sound. Fly has a certain sound. Did it matter to you what sound you guys were going for? Or was it like, let's just take songs that we can write and record and we have snippets of? That's how we kind of wrote. When you're working with a DJ, you know, he, he, he'd bring up a, a track. We'd, we'd start writing off that. Uh, some people would come up with a chorus. I'd come up with a bass line. So there was no Noel Gallagher in our band. None. There were three major entities in the songwriting creative process, myself, Rodney, and Stan. But there was no guy that just like, here's the song, done, let's go. And writing a uh, writing like that's very difficult. You can come out with gems, but, you know, there's a lot of duds as well. Uh, so we had pieces of Fly. You know, when I first heard Fly, it was the worst thing I've ever heard. Hmm. I go, I'm quitting the band. Wow. Because it was, uh, our drummer was singing it, and he was singing like in a falsetto, and it was like kind of a... Uh, like an airy thing, like, I just want to fly. And I'm like, um, I quit, I quit. Because, you know, we're coming off the, you know, we tore it down, we tore it with Deftones, Monster right. Magnet, and I got, I, this is not the direction. Mick G, I call Mick G, we're in New York City, I go, I'm coming home, this is, it's not working, man. Uh, and he goes, what are you going to do? Come home and just, what are you going to do? Let me know. In two weeks, you're going to wish you're back there. Finish the song, see if you can do something. So I went and added some verses to it that weren't there. Started shaping up a little bit more to me. Then it felt good. It felt like we had something. You know, I was able to see through my like my weirdness to go, yeah, there is something there in the ether. You know, thank God I did because yeah. I, I'm I'm so glad I didn't get in the way of that song. Right. So I guess Stryker, what I'm trying to say in the most garrulous, verbose way, and that's how I say, uh, we had pieces of songs written that we were going to perform for David Kahn in a uh, recording studio in New York City. Why, and why were you guys in New York City? Because your main dude from the label was there when you guys are West Coast dudes. Like the vibe here is maybe the vibe which would help you creatively. Which is Out there would give you when Fly was written in New York. You know, that's yes. the irony of that whole thing. Yeah. We had written our first record in L.A. by ourselves. Kids in a candy store, no one looking over our shoulder, no one checking us, you know, doing whatever we want. Let's just say I, Lemonade and Brownies I love because it's probably the most diverse, varied record. It just... We didn't want to repeat that process again. We wanted to go for it, you know, and being in New York, we all would be together. There'd be no distractions because everybody had girlfriends and stuff. And it's just too easy to go home to Newport, and not be in the studio for 12 hours. Right. We go to New York. We're all there focused. We're in there together, which was hard to, because New York's a party town, apparently. So no one told me that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've lost some focus there as well. But the label was also in New York City, too. That was attractive to us. We could be near them, use their resources if we need to. Um, and so we had a, a 24-hour lockout, lived there for a couple of months, and started putting the record together. And who really helped get these songs completed? David Gunn. Okay. David Gunn. We, we, brought, we brought these songs 70, 
80% of the way, and David Kahn just took him the rest of the way. Was it a tough process making that album? Yes, it, it, was, was. it was very tough because it started being a lot more aggressive than we originally thought because of the world we were coming from. We were touring with the Deft Deftones, Monster Magnet. So, the, you know, Fly is the anomaly on that record. You know, yes. it's just, like, just this lilty, bracing right. thing. But I think with Lemonade and Brownies, we were kind of hinting where we might or might not go. Now, I, I felt like we got a little bit of momentum in Europe on this thing. Let's not let, let's not just completely bail on them. Um, so let, let's keep, you know, let's keep on writing some of the hard stuff. But turns out we don't do that that well, especially the down tune stuff. That's not our thing. A little fun, little punky nuggets. Hey, I mean, we've got a couple of those. Yeah. But uh, like, you know, answer the phone and stuff. But like the down tune, dreary stuff just wasn't our thing. And I was fighting against that uphill battle because that little bit of spark of success was over there. I was almost doubting our songwriting capabilities and wow. being able to write songs that meant something. You know, our songs back in uh, Lemon and Brownies were cars are cool, beer is rad, you know, now we're writing a song about missing somebody mm -hmm. and, and love and, and real, real, I mean, just, you're, you're, you're for the first time in our lives, we're exposing ourselves to the world, how we felt inside. That to me was scary as a songwriter. Uh, but luckily people reacted to it. You yes, know? they did. Um, and so, so David got involved. He goes, he goes, yeah, I like this. Uh, Fly is the only chant song here. That's good. Here, here, yeah, fly, I, I want to work on this song because of one note. And when we were rehearsing in front of him, I went, my mother, God rest her soul. And he goes, do that again. I go, my mother. He goes, no, the other one. <laughs> he goes, my mother, God rest her soul. He goes, on that note right there, I think we can sell 2 million records. On that note. And we always oh went like, God, God what? <laughs> and by the way, David Kahn was very in demand right there because what he did was sublime. Right. He did, you know, the bangles, he did Walk Like an Egyptian. The man who had to craft a pop song. So what we did is surrendered ourselves to David Kahn. I mean, some people didn't even play in the band. They just, nope, we don't have time. Sorry, we're not going to do this. Nope, you're going to do that. And we let David just take over and do his thing. And thank God we did because I'm, what, what David did is let us know what we can do and what we don't do. And one of the hardest things he ever did to me is, and I've told this story before. Tell me. Um, I was in there about to sing Fly. Okay, now I know the band knows, everybody knows this is our only shot in hell. This is our last shot. This is it. Now, are you people, really feeling that though, Mark? Oh, without a doubt. Because I'm about because I left Fly for last, and we all knew it was we all knew it was the one. Okay, this is the only one that's got a chance. You know, RPM felt good, it was fine. But I love. I've told you this when I've had too many drinks in me yes. and not drinks in me. <laughs> I love RPM. Thanks, that bro. is my jam right there. I was playing it for Sean right there earlier today. Like I'm like Sean, you don't know how much I love this song even more than Fly. This oh, is my so jam. I was, I, I'm honored, man. And that was a fun one to make. And I thought the car thing was really cool. Yeah. yeah. And Rodney and our DJ got really good at doing was that. Was DJ live. Homicide in DJ the band? DJ Homicide, yeah. DJ okay. Homicide, uh, great guy. Uh, very responsible, too, for, for helping the band get the success where we were able to achieve. Okay, so here you go. Um, you, you're so in the studio. We're in the studio. We've done all their songs. Fly's left. And we all know why it's left. And it's like kind of like when uh, you know uh, you don't bother a field goal kicker when he's about to kick the last second thing. Yeah. So the band wasn't looking at me, you know. <laughs> Atlantic Records was in the, the, the booth and kind of doing this. And, oh, and I'm Jesus sitting there all Christ. by myself. I feel like Eric Carmen out there with no pants on. Going, <laughs> oh, my God. This is it. And everybody knew this was it. This, it was everybody. And David Kahn just goes like, like in his most sardonic, like dry way. He goes, this is him pushing his glasses up. Yeah. He goes, um, Mark. Oh uh, yeah, David. He goes, I've got some good news and some bad news. Doop. And I go, hmm. I'm being the Irishman that I am. I go, David, give me the bad news first. He goes, boop. You can't sing. Boop. And I'm like, David, call me crazy. What could possibly be the good news right now and about to sing this song that's our only chance on the record? 
you have a tone in your voice that if you listen to me, this song will be a gigantic hit. <laughs> and I went, boop. And I went, so it was the biggest like backhanded compliment. So we had to start building the things. So we went, all around, stop. So David was on an early Pro Tools thing. Okay. All around the world, statues crumble. Stop. Say, crumble, crumble. And, and it just piece by piece by piece. And he said, here's your voice. And it was fly. It became, and then that's was like, you know, you know, once oh you get a template of something in success, we're like, that feels pretty good. You know, yes. That led to the other side. I don't, I'm getting ahead of this now. But so when we finished Fly, I'm like, it's not done. And everybody was so mad at me. And David always had my back. And David goes, what do you mean, Mark? He goes, I think it's done. He goes, there's something missing, man. There's just something missing. There's a, there's a, a, like a Jamaican patois missing through here. I kind of hear it. Can't believe you had the guts song. to tell this guy that I after did. he I, just told you, and you following every bit. Now you're telling him, hold on, we need something else. And this was a couple days later when the song was done. He pro told mix it, everything. And we all were feeling good about it. And I, I go, something missing, something missing. And I go, David, you, you probably don't know. You probably don't know this guy, but there's, there's a guy named Supercat. He's, and I think he, he had a little dance hop and he stopped me. He goes, Supercat, I signed him to Columbia Record. Oh, okay, how you being on? Doing like a fake patois with Cat. I'm like, what is happening here? And he goes, yeah, I'll send it to you right away. Boom. So overnight, it's Supercat. Supercat loves the song. Loves the song. He goes, I've got my whole thing already. And, we're, and we go, David, can we hear it first before? Yes, he goes, not how Supercat works. He's all in his head. <laughs> we'll see what he gets here. Two days later, Supercat lays down and, and he went from top to bottom and did not stop. So, uh, all nice, slip of the coup. The first thing you hear was all the way from the top to the end of the song. So, we had to, you know, Chop it up so it fit the song David did, obviously, and made it perfect. So oh that was gosh. the final nail in that coffin that sent that song to number one. You know, and that was wow, that Mark. was it. That was the dream maker. That was the supernova right there. Man alive. Yeah. It just shows you there's so many little pieces involved. If Rodney's guitar part in there wasn't there, you know, he he point he makes a note go out of tune. There's a guitar player in the live that would have kept that in the, we kept it because we loved it. It's like a replacement's a mistake. You know what I mean? Uh Craig's drum loop in there is phenomenal. The bass part that, that our bass player Murphy came up with. The, he was just warming up and our Drummer Stan heard it and went, what's that? He goes, I'm just warming up. He goes, no, that's, I got it. And that became Fly right there. So all these serendipitous events led to the success of Fly. Wow. Yeah. All right. Things are happening. Yes. The song is huge. People are now doing a deep dive. I'm like, who the hell is Sugar Ray? <laughs> they think you're Sugar Ray. They They're do. like, yep. what? so did that annoy you at the time? Like you, your name is Sugar Ray? Absolutely not. Okay. And I'll tell you why. It's not that I'm a, I, I just, I'm a, but you, you know, remember, I remember that happening. Oh, yeah. Well, people just call me Sugar. So I'll be walking down a New York construction site with the buffest guys with their shirt off going, hey, Sugar. I'm like, what's up, bro? You know what I'm saying? So it was, it was funny in that sense. Um, I kind of backfired on, on me a little bit. But, but you know, I, I think we were quickly able to put that put out. People still call me Sugar Ray today. That's fine. You know what people were calling us? Before, they weren't calling us to dinner, Striker. That's right. what they weren't doing. So right. we were just so caught up and happy with the success and all your dreams coming true, being on MTV, you know, in a bus that we deserve for the first time, going on tour 311 and Incubus, playing arenas that I only used to see on ESPN. Now we're playing every arena. I'm like, oh, yes. we just were having too much fun. And every day, another magical mystery happened. And then finally, at the culmination of that, we go through Atlantic Records and Ahmed Erdogan gives us a gold record. And we're like, what is happening? What is going on? We don't ever want this to end. 
you know? How important is your musical knowledge and knowledge of musical history? Did that help you with your band? Or did it maybe 0%? It's probably the best question I've ever been asked. And, I, and because it's so important to my songwriting. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm inspired by things, you know, and they'll, they'll go into my songwriting. Um, Suavecito uh, by, Ma, by Amalo, you know. La, 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 ah. You remember that? Yes. That, that was in every morning. Ah. So what I would do. Oh, uh, I, right. From, from loving, right. From loving Suavecito oh to loving God. Gilbert Sullivan. You know, um, at 25 years old, my mother, God rest her soul. 65 years old. Mother God rest her soul. She couldn't understand why the only man she had ever loved. So I am so, I think it's so funny. And I'm, you, you were kind of like blowing my own mind right now. My love for music definitely affected my songwriting, inspired it for sure. You know what I mean? Because I was inspired by literally. Yeah, I tweaked the melodies here and there and obviously came up a, a lot of uh, stuff. But um, that knowledge and knowing that Supercat existed in the world because I love music yeah. was a huge part of that song to success. Right. So I think you entirely. Bullseye on that one, dude. Bullseye. So now two years go by and you release your third full-length record. Yes. Here we go, 1459. And this is when I think a lot of people are like, not only are these guys good and great songwriters and wonderful live, but they also have a personality because of what you name the album. Our 15 Minutes of Fame is almost up, so we're going to call it 1459. But holy macaroni, this thing is full of great songs. You don't feel pressure at all, do you? Did you? There's, oh, there's zero pressure. Okay, at all. zero pressure. So I'm you joking. work with David Kahn again. I'm oh. joking. Oh, you, oh. I, there, there is so much pressure. And I'll tell you why. When you get a hit song, you get a cup of coffee up there. You know, they say that when you get to the majors, I had a cup of coffee. You know? Yeah. It's a cup of coffee. You're up there for a sec, and then you're up, we're up there seven months. We're like, this is so much fun. They're like, you guys are done. And people were so quick to call us one hit wonders because Fly was the anomaly on that record. I don't blame them. There was nothing similar to it. You know, it was kind of a complaint of people about their record. He goes, about flying? What's this other crap I'm hearing? Hmm. Breathe? What is that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I understand people's frustrations. But when you are sort of in a band where everybody kind of has a little bit of an input, especially three of us really driving the creative process, it's tough to, you know, uh, it's tough to pacify everybody in the band, never mind people buying the records. So, Stryker, we were a band that was so quick to be written off. Hey, go have fun on that one hit wonder cruise ship for the rest of your life. Kajagoogoo's on the third deck. <laughs> Chumbawamba's downstairs waiting for you. You know, you know what? I'm saying it's like yes. it was just like they were so quick and now once you are a commodity a business commodity for the label there's a whole new pressure you didn't know exists called money never had any before fly now we got a little for ourselves and the label wants their cut too so now you become a commodity a priority for the label so oh you feel every you thought there was pressure before I talked about you know success that's the second hardest thing right staying there is the hardest thing by far because now we're like wow the pressure was so hardcore, I named the record 14 minutes and 59 seconds. Because it's either the greatest title in the world if the record fails, or it's the greatest title in the world if it succeeds. Either way, you win. And because of that pressure, I named it that. I was feeling so much pressure. But I felt we had some good songs. And I felt Fly, I felt more people wanted to hear Fly because there was not another Fly on floor. We're sitting on every morning, which felt really Really good. Instantaneous. I knew immediately I was living in Tucson, working on a radio station called KFMA. Instantly. Super smash hit. I got to tell you, Stryker, I can remember when, uh, remember Hits Magazine. 
Yes. There was yes. A, there was a guy there, and this was this is uh, November, and the record was going to be released in January, which is kind of a strange time for a you know beachy type song to release. But right, you know, we're like January forget. of nineteen ninety nine when the that, full length that, was going to come out. That's right. That's right. And we're like, and and the single was going to come out like at the same time, like it was going to come. They were going to leak it a little bit in December so we could do some of those Christmas shows. Um, but I remember in November, Hits Magazine came out and said this, and I'll never forget. I'm going to cry thinking about it. It had changed my life forever. Um, it said, uh, it looks like we've heard our first number one song of 1999, and it's by a band we thought we'd never hear from again, oh, Sugar Ray. Oh, man. I'll, I'll wow. never forget that, man. And I was like, I remember wow. I was in an apartment in Franklin and Hollywood, and I'm like, I got on the ground, and was like, just just so happy. I was just screaming and yelling and I was just like, I was just like crying and I was just like, oh my God. And just having that little hope that someone else heard what we did. And this was a taste maker on the, uh, on the hits thing. Right. And they and, can be jerks over there. Oh, and they, you know, he was an older guy and he was never a Sugar Ray fan. And he goes, and he, he, it was, it was almost bad, you know, admonishing us saying like, and I thought we'd never hear from these guys again. And it's Sugar Ray. And then that's when every morning started happening. Everybody loved it, and it became bigger than Fly. Did it start at alternative radio stations first, and then cross over, or did stations like Kiss FM start with that one first? That's what's so interesting about Sugar Ray and our career is that we literally would go through all the genres. We'd start alternative. Good. That's then, the smartest thing. You well, start if alternative. You're lucky then enough crossover. to do that. You can't design that because yeah, because well, most people the song's got to be really really big. And alternatives got to be willing to play with pop radio, and eventually ate our it, it, it eventually ate ourselves from the insides because of this because mm. all of a sudden we weren't called alternative radio anymore. You know they're like, well, wait, we want our own special thing, and if you're just going to run this thing to pop to triple A to AC, we don't want something we're breaking early on K Rock ended up on triple AC. That's not, I mean, that's kind of what the but no doubt started on alternative, and then like so, like don't speak specifically no, right, went right, here right, and then there. Right. There are certain bands, yeah, yeah, yeah. But and also like K Rock, we were the first one to fall out of favor at K Rock too. K Rock goes, you guys aren't cool anymore. That was a real gut gut punch. And I'll tell you why. Cause you know, we, I grew up in Newport beach and that was very important to me. But the fact that we got to have a ride on K rocks train for a while, for a long time, a bunch of songs went down there falls apart someday, every morning. Yes. They played RPM. So just that we had a, a, a nice little run at, at K rock and every now and then you hear the top 500 and you know, and you hear and you're in the there way. and that, that means the world to me. It truly does oh, because, because I grew up with that stuff, you know? Uh, but they were the first to go, yeah, 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 that's cool. Still got some alternative stations. We all pop over here. So we wrote out the pop thing and we went out to, you know, Popville, if you will, which is fine. I mean, I, was that the plan though, Mark? There's a serious question here. Bands want to be as successful and huge as possible. Mm -hmm. You're not in this to make no money. It's a job. You want to get out of an apartment at Hollywood and Franklin. Was the plan always to get on the other stations or it's just the natural progression when a song is this big, you just can't resist playing it everywhere. Yeah, you, you could never plan for that, especially a band like us who was playing Zodiac Mind Warp cover songs in 88. <laughs> thinking you were going to get a number one song on pop radio. It was just like the trajectory is impossible. It was impossible. It'd be like saying at the time, hey, Mark, you're going to be point guard for the Lakers in 10 years. It, it was like it's the same fantasy then. Um, so, no, you could never plan that in a million years. I think with us, and like I said, with our influences, we were kind of going where we're... Where, the wave was a little bit like the, the early wave was that, you know, that out in Europe like that. We, I mean, we wanted to stay alive, wanted to keep being in a band. 
You know, people think, oh, they changed their sound. You know, Florida's arguably, arguably, arguably our hardest record. It's got just, it's heavy. But Lemonade Brownies has straight R&B songs on it. Yeah. I'm singing it in falsetto. So if you weren't being sort of told where we were going to go in the future, uh, you know, then that's on you. Then you didn't really get what the essence of the band was. Um, and, and that's my fault, too. Like, what an idiot I was, young, naive, working in Tucson, not understanding how hard it is to have a song that the radio plays and that people care about. And whether it's Sugar Ray or other bands, your third and fourth record should not sound like your first and second, no matter who you are. Because you're getting older, you're more mature, different songwriting, different vent. The band wants this and that. Well, I mean, that's the idea. If you're lucky enough to have a band that's making a third or fourth record, right. you've been in the game a while. That's right. So you certainly need to sort of change. The, the radio's changing, you know? So you certainly need to change a little bit. Now, ACDC's made the same record for 25 years, and I, I 45 years, and I don't want them to make a different yeah. record, you know? <laughs> it works for some bands. But for a band like us, so we, we never got onto that legacy fan base. You know, we have a lot of people that know, that, that love the music, but we just never had the, the, uh, we, we had great fans that, that were, that were younger and really enjoyed the music, but I could see they were going to cycle out. You know, we didn't have bands that were going to be like, Oh, the 97 tour, like, you know, that was so great. I, I could just feel that, you know, we had a lot of people that loved like the hysteria of it all, but we were failing to connect to them. We're like, Oh, track seven on this is so important. They, they weren't, which is fine. It just didn't happen that way. They weren't breaking down the music, um, the way I had hoped they would being in a band, but maybe the band, maybe the music didn't deserve that. You know, I, I think this, we got more than we deserved in this business scene. And certainly do I, the mm. fact that I still get to play music for a living. I mean, you know, I, I, I've taken way more than I deserve. We sold 10 million records, you know, wow, yeah, good two, for two you, Mark. One, Congratulations 10, to you and all the guys. Hold on. I I'm talked really over you. Yeah. You sold 10 million records. Uh -huh. And what was the next thing you said? We had two number ones. Four top tens and six top forties, you know, which is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's good. It's magical stuff and it's dreamland and I'm still living it. You know, and people kind of sometimes go like, are you still doing that band thing, Mark? And I always go like, do you look at a dentist and go like, are you still doing that dentist thing, thing man? Like, this is right. what I do. And I told you earlier, this is what I'm going to do to the end. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to do something you love. There is no plan B. I mean, that cliche is cliche because it's real. Your bubble is 10,000 times bigger than mine. But I was talking to my wife recently. I'm like, I don't know any other job that I could have. I got the podcast. I've been on the radio for like 25 years, yeah. 23, four years in Los Angeles. Like, if I wanted to, what else? Is, I, I better keep, I got to keep doing this. Like, but you're so good at it. Dude. Oh, thanks, no, Mark. No, it's, it's what you thanks, do, dude. Man. And like, your, your, your star is starting to shine, which is, which it's, it's like you're getting the second sort of upheaval of the striker business. Thank you, Because Mark. this is such a beautiful player for you. You know, you are, you talk about Howard Stern being a great interviewer and he is, but you're so conversational. Uh, you feel like you're talking to a homie. And when you're watching and listening, you feel the same way. So Thank you. It's a magical thing you do. You're supposed to be doing this. That's why you're going to do it for the rest of your life. Thank you, man. So you go 95, 97, 99 on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the 90s. Huh? I know. So 1459 has three legitimate super hits. And then Triple platinum, man. Yeah. Did more than, than Florida did, but nobody expected that. Right. We didn't expect that. You so know? now what's the mindset when you go make the self-titled? Well, now you're talking to the president of the label. And it was kind of a depressing time because this is like 2000, well, 2001, not, not yet. And Sean Fanning hadn't won. Wait a minute yet. You know, they were, but it was, it was Napster you're referring to yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, it was on, it was on the horizon. Um, but the, after 1459, 
we felt, okay, we're, we're doing, this is what we do now. We're doing this. You know, we made it, we, you know, in the 70s and 80s, if you'd sold 5 million records, you're, you're going to do that the rest of your life. In the 80s and 90s, that changed a lot. You know, it, it, you might not have a shelf life of forever anymore. That was interesting. I remember still being desperate after 1459 because I'm so hungry and I'm so fearful and so self-effacing that it all could go away. So I was trying to do whatever it took to stay in the mix and yeah. we decided to make the record a little heavier. We, I think, you know, we went down every morning, Trentville. We went down the Sunday thing. You know, I think we, we, you know, we had a song on the Scooby-Doo soundtrack, and we were in Scooby-Doo called Words to Me that are very much a simpatico to those uh, songs. So I, I thought at that time we did it. We're going to need to try something else to stay alive. And I don't regret trying something else because it was time to do that. So our self-titled record in 2001 became a little bit harder. We went with Don Gilmore as a producer. Right. Who did Linkin Park lit he just finished lincoln park he was I got this little band called lincoln park it was i don't know about the rapper but i think they're gonna do all right oh. <laughs> god Damn. sorry sorry wow done. So I was thinking, and he was and he was the label he was a warner and then you know out of here such a great band um so we go yeah let's get a little more rockier let's go let's go you know we had a little rock roots you know sometimes people forget that we went back to our rock roots with the self-titled record now we had when it's over in our back pocket we go, you know, this thing feels pretty familiar, feels like a hit, feels good. Um, and so we went down that 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 uh, that process with Don Gilmore, had some great songs, Answer the Phone, song called Waiting, I think that could have been a hit. Um, and and which made this cool rock record. I really liked it. It was like a like it was a good record to make at the time. It's the, probably the band's favorite record. Mm, it just feels wow. very it feels very cohesive from top to bottom. I, I, there, that I can listen to every song on that record, and I can't do that in any other record uh, uh, in the Sugar Ray catalog. But we finished, and we just looked at when it's over and went, I don't know if it's there. I did, of course, you know, because I just overthink everything and I panic about everything. And I and I, go, I just don't know if it's there. And I, I, I go, I love Don's version. It's just something missing. And it was bothering me again. And I go, I cannot. This is my career. So I just put my tail between my legs and went, beep, bop, boop, boop, boop. <laughs> Hi, David Kahn. <laughs> <laughs> He's still there. No. Now, now Don's, Don's version was great. It was great. And I took it to David and I go, David, I go, David, this is great. Isn't it? He goes, yeah, it's great. I go, it's a hit, right? He goes, yeah, it's a hit. He goes, but it's not a classic. And I want to oh, take up my shirt, open my heart. What are you going to do? And, and we, we, we didn't fire him. We just didn't go back to him again for the, for the self-titled. So there's a little bit of like hemming and hawing, a little bit of, you know, wow. a little bit of, hey, would you mind just taking a look at it, dude? We've been through so much together and we, I, we think you're the guy. And so he went. Put the glasses up. I, I'll, I got an hour after this Paul McCartney session. I'll, I'll take a look <laughs> at it. And thank God he did because he just added a little bit of magic in. Just a little bit. It was a hit with Don Gilmore's version. It was a hit. I'm telling you. But David made it just so it was going to hang around. It's a classic, you know? Wow. And so When It's Over became the single off the self-titled. But the landscape was changing. You know, I remember I used to follow Everclear and Smash Mouth and watch their chart numbers, their their record sales and all that, because I felt we were the last simpatico between our bands, and they were falling off a little bit. And they weren't getting the spins. And R&R, as you know, was this... this Radio and Records. Radio and Records yep. was a a Bible for all of us to read. It said how many spins to the number you had at every station across the country. And we were, you know, we, we were starting to fall out a little bit. The strokes and Interpol were starting to come around and there was this new little skinny tie vibe happening. I'm like, right. oh man. When it's over, it came out, it got added to every pop station, not a lot of alternative stations. So I could see right out that way what we're dealing with. Um, and it did its thing. It, it, the record went platinum again, yes. which is great. 
uh, I toured with Uncle Cracker. Well, I was a lot of fun. And we were just a working band doing our thing. And I go, you know what? If we're just going to make platinum records the rest of our life, no problem. And so that was the, the self-title. But that's cool that the pop stations added that song and you went platinum right away. So that had to feel good. But then you guys took somewhere between four and five years off before, I don't know if you took it off necessarily, but before you put out another record. Well, not, Were you guys exhausted or what was going on? Not necessarily. So we, with 2001, the self-title came out. Yep. Uh, we were limping into the next record. Now Fanning's Napster's out and the labels are panicking and it's 2003. Oh, in the Pursuit of Leisure, yeah, right. Pursuit yes, of Leisure yes, yes, yep, 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 Now yep. we have, you know, the, the, the president of Atlantic going, is your record done? Like I, I'm in the studio going, I, I, talk about pressure. He goes like, I got a, I got a fourth quarter. If this one, I'm like, dude, I'm trying to, these aren't, you know, you just can't just put it, you can't bake these hits. You know what I mean? They take some time, they have to marinate, get to marinate. Um, so, so, there was a lot of pressure then. There was just an overall feeling of the sky is falling in the record industry oh, in 2003. Man. For the artists, for the labels, for the, the manufacturers, for all of us, for the radio stations, alternative was starting to go away. Right. You know, they're going right. one by one. So right. it was falling like dominoes every day, like gigantic, like corporations were falling. So it was where we're kind of in the middle of that. And In the Pursuit of Leisure is a band at the end of their rope with no creative oh, juices man. left, nothing left. Man. Uh, went back to David Kahn. He, had, he, he, he goes, I don't want to do Sugar Ray. I want to do something else. You know, so he was doing all these, like, we, we didn't really even set up the instruments. Uh, the last hit we had was we did a cover of uh, Joe Jackson's uh, Issue going out with him. And that limped to top 40. It was over, it's over, oh, it's man. over. And it was over. We had a big tour that year with Matchbox 20 and some band called Maroon... <laughs> they yes. opened for us. Yes. Uh, I remember going, this band's going to be really big. They were opening for us. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So I was still having all this fun. All my dreams are coming true. I'm playing Staples Center. I'm playing Madison Square Garden. But in the back of my head, I knew it was over. And it was over. Really, Mark? Yep. So we came back in 2004. And some of the guys had little babies in the band. And they wanted to watch them grow, which I, of course, could not begrudge. Uh, and I made a couple calls of things that were kind of uh, on the outside waiting for me. You know, if Mark's ever ready, you know, I'm here. And one of those calls was the extra. I went in there on a Friday. Uh, and two weeks later, I was hosting extra. And you did a great job. I don't know about that. Job. I, 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 I tell a funny story, Striker. Uh, you know, I started there. And I was, I was, you know, I'm a big showbiz guy. You know, I'm, I'm trying to hit the back of the, the last row on the stage in the arena. I want to have everybody involved. I'm a big movement guy. And TV is like this. Pretty still, right? TV is an eyebrow. I mean, Clint yeah. Eastwood made a career out of this. You right. Know what I mean? so exactly. I'm, like, I'm going, hey, I'm just like, dude, calm down. So I remember I was like a deer in the headlights my first couple of shows, six months into it, you know, and, and they were so kind to me at Extra. I've never worked harder. I've never seen a group of people smarter and work harder. Yeah, at the end of the day, what they were putting out was, you know, it is what it was, but the people there are some of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure to work with and still to know to this day. But I remember six months into my tenure at Extra, I was getting a coffee at six in the morning at a 7-Eleven, not for the reasons why I used to be able to get coffee right, at six in the morning. <laughs> I was working Extra. Uh, and this guy walks in, he's kind of like, you know, had like a neck tattoo and he's kind of like dirty and he's coming at me. I'm like, oh God. He goes, hey, Mark. I go, hey, yeah, hey, what's up, bro? He goes, Dude, you sucked when you started, but keep it up. You're getting better. <laughs> so I think what's always the hardest thing to do, and I've done it before, is learn. And I guess this is my second time. Learn how to do your career in front of people. You know, I had to learn how to sing and write songs in front of people. And I learned how to, how to learn to be a host at Extra in front of people. I guess my only way to fail is in front of people. You know? I'm going to throw bands at you. Yeah. Give me a line on the band because... 
you know more about music than just about everybody I know. Give me a line about the band and how much you like them, love them. Guns N' Roses. Love, love, love Guns N' Roses. The best debut record of all time. Okay. When your debut record is a greatest hits record, you won. The Cure. I, I love The Cure with everything in my heart and soul. Okay, The Cure was one of those K-Rock phenomenon bands I'm talking about. We were on, out here in Southern California. The Cure was the Rolling Stones to us before it was to everybody else. I They speak to me in such, like, when I want to cry and get dark and go inner emo. They were our first emo band. Yes. You know what I'm saying? We yeah. were emo before you guys were emo. That's what I'm trying to say. Jane's Addiction. I love Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction doesn't get enough credit for what they did. They ushered in the era along with the steady, steady helping, help of uh, R.E.M., the alternative music genre. And fight me on that. Tell me differently. Should they be in the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I think they should absolutely be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because people in the Hall of Fame will tell you they should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, I think Dave Grohl would tell you that. I think people that know would tell you that, you know. Uh, and also Dave Navarro, uh, he's done a lot of things outside of music, is one of the greatest guitar players of our generation. Wow. For sure, by far. Songwriting, wow. Perry is a frontman, untouchable. Stephen Perkins, his drum style, the the the, the Tom style, it's, it's, people, it's hard for people to replace that. You know, I'm in a band with Dave Navarro. We play a lot of cover songs, and people want to play Jane's all the time. And, and people really struggle on Stephen's drum pattern. So really, and Chris Chaney's in the band too. So they just uh, belong in the Hall of Fame for sure. Where are you with Weezer? I love Weezer. Oh, really? <laughs> we wrote a song called Rivers for the Scream 2 soundtrack. <laughs> That's how much I love Weezer. I love we that first record, man. It got me through. When we would tour in Europe and we'd have no cell phones, no credit cards, all we had was that Weezer CD. And we up and down. And I remember listening to that with uh, with um, Chino from the Deftones. Yes. And like, just like hugging each other and crying. And my name's John like drunk and like yes. in the middle of Germany. I, I love that band with everything. I've said it to every band. I just, cause you look, look at the home run bands you're, you're throwing at me. If you don't like these bands, you don't like music. I just love hearing you describe them and talk about them using your words. Blink-182? I love Blink-182. You kidding me? I, I, another band that like in retrospect, you look back with rose-colored eyes because if you were telling me, I used to see them at a place called Diego's and Winters down in San Diego. It was all dick jokes and fart jokes. And like, there were songs somewhere deep in there, but no yeah. better than like songs that were written by the adolescents or something. You know what I mean? So if you're going to tell me they were going to be like one of the biggest rock bands in the world, I would, I would have said, well, I want to stick around for that. I want to see it. Uh, and I think they did an incredible, incredible turn with the record um, that had Robert Smith on it. And, oh, yeah, right, and, right. And yep. I mean, they, they really became... The dick jokes went away and they became Blink-182. Those will always be part of Blink-182, but they became a real songwriting entity after that song. What was the name of that record? It's got the double X and it's got Miss You, Miss You on it. And uh, Was that the self-titled? I'm feeling this. Yeah, they, they went, I think it is self-titled. Oh, self-titled. Okay, yeah, the self-titled Because Robert Smith with the Concure is on right, it. And yeah. it's, just, it's such a beautifully, masterfully written record. So yeah, no, I love Blink-182. Last one. And this is a band who I finally saw for the first time four years ago, saw them for the second time uh, about four months ago. Rolling Stones. Love, love, love the Rolling Stones. And and there's an emotional connection there because we got to open for the Rolling Stones in 1999. Holy yeah. mackerel. We got to open. And, and I, I'll never forget this because uh, we were in Vegas opening for them. It was 1999 and uh, sold out. 
and we're about to play every morning. It's the last song of the set. And I go, I just want to thank the Rolling Stones and their crew for having us here. I don't think it can get any better than what's happening right now. Really. I mean, I, I want to be in the moment. Every morning's number one in the country right now. So thank you all. Wait a minute. It just got a little bit better. Mick and Keith are watching right there. From no. the and that was so insane, and they were so kind to have us out for a couple of days. Then I saw them recently at SoFi. Yeah, yeah, By that's way, the show. Get there four hours early if you plan on parking at SoFi. Right. Um, they were incredible. And I'm sitting there, I was with my wife. I go, why am I liking this so much? They're, they're, they sound so great. Well, I love Charlie Watts as a drummer. Charlie played a little bit behind with the Stones. Steve Jordan pushed it a little bit so all the songs were doing a little i go why am i oh it's steve jordan huh. and i ran into one of their uh backup singers just recently at the airport and i go you know he goes we were all saying that he goes i was rehearsing with steve jordan and i brought keith down and he goes he's adding a little pizzazz to it right and did charlie the greatest of all time but steve added you were at that show yes man. i was just like, why am i having so much fun he was just pushing it a little bit so yeah stones they're untouchable i mean people the beatles versus stones okay because so we'll talk about the two best bands that ever lived and i don't think there are ever going to be more bands that are going to be challenging that throne so it's the stones and the beatles who do you have for number one or you could throw someone else in there if you want to i'll throw led zeppelin in the mix mm -hmm. I'll throw the Beach Boys in the mix. I'll definitely raise your Beach Boys for sure. <sighs> Mark, for 90% of my life, I'd say the Beatles. But because the Rolling Stones still play, and I've seen their electricity, even in this day and age, whatever age they're at, is they're the best. Yeah. Rolling Stones are the best. I can't I just, disagree, especially when we're talking about rock bands, rock and roll. Yes. You know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the Beatles went out there in a psychedelia and all their stuff. They, Stones, they true to it. So, Who's the yeah. best band in the last 20 years? Last 20 years? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's a tough one, man. Last 20 years, who's the best band? Boy, that's, that's a tough you one. You can I, pass. You can pass. No, no, it's just, it's, it's, I, I just don't. I, so I, that's I, from like, how about from like 1999 until now? Well, Who would it be? The best band that's ever. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, no, you know, that's hard to say. The best, you know, history, I don't know. I'm kind of going against my own thing right now, you know? I don't know. It's too hard to say. Too hard to say. Okay. All right, let's wrap it right there. We're like an hour and five minutes into this hey, thing. Hey, look at that. Mark, thank you so much for coming over. I know we started early today. <laughs> and I, I don't know what time you go to bed, but I go to bed early. So I like this is when I have my energy. But Mark, congratulations on your career, the way you've conducted yourself. And um, you obviously have many, many, many more years to play live. And I have not been to a Sugar Ray show in a long time. So if there's one soon, Beach I would like to be there. Oh, that. right. Beach Life. That's yes. Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. You know, and you're in a Smashing Joy. Pumpkins video. There, there you go. Yes. Man, that was a weird thing, too. I was in there. I was in there. Uh, I was like the big top announcer. I know. It was good. I, Billy Corgan would never tell me why, but I know there was a why there. You know, maybe the why is the why. Was he nice to you? Oh, he's the greatest. I love Billy. I love Billy, too. Sweet, sweet, sweet guy. Under, Smashing Pumpkins are underrated, in my opinion. That's, that's a very good band to say underrated, for sure. And I love the way Billy now has just embraced... You know, we're talking about the, the people like change. Billy's just embraced being who he is now. He's very comfortable in his skin. Totally very, comfortable. Very wonderful to see because he wasn't always that way 20, 25 years ago. Right. You know what I mean? And he's just he's just up for anything. He laughs, he smiles, he's great. I Puts love Puts pumpkins Billy. in the Hall of Fame as well, for God's sake. Absolutely, sakes. absolutely. It's man. nuts. All right. 
Hey, Stryker, thank you, too. Uh, if you're going to throw it my way, I'm going to throw it your way. Always been there, early champion of the band. Every time I see you, smiles, hugs, happiness. You know, you're just, you just you've never big-time me. Always been super cool, and uh, it's an honor. Thank you for letting me uh, force myself onto thank you. Toast. Thank you, Mark McGrath. You got it, bud. All right, that's the show, everybody. Woo! Holy mackerel for Mark McGrath. <laughs> I am Ted Stryker. Thanks for listening and watching. Happy snuggles. Bye-bye. <laughs> that's another episode of Stryker's Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs>